Howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here. Really excited to help you learn God's Word here at Mark Driscoll Ministries. We like to help people learn God's Word and we like to help leaders teach God's Word. And we've got a lot of new resources for you, all free, through the great book of 1 John in a series titled, The Father Heart of God. John was Jesus' nearest and dearest, closest and most faithful, best friend, and as an elderly man, the last living disciple of Jesus, he writes this amazing letter, and in his words, we hear the Father heart of God. I had the opportunity to teach this book in 13 weeks as a Bible study for the core launch team of the Trinity Church that I'm having the honor of planting in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I wanted you to learn God's Word, and so we've also provided for you about a 20,000 word study guide. This will help you study it personally with your family and or a small group. And for those of you who really like to go deep, we've got a free 240,000 word research brief that was put together by a team of scholars and professors and we'll give it all to you for free at markdriscoll.org. Go ahead and sign up and any gift that you give will help us to give more Bible teaching away. Thanks for the help. Father God, thank you for an opportunity to teach the scriptures today. Uh, Lord, thank you that you're a father who talks to his kids, that you talk to your kids all the time, that you talk to us about incredibly practical matters. And uh, Father God, as we open the scriptures today, we invite the Holy Spirit to help us to hear your voice and to share your heart and to obey your will. And so Lord, thank you for the opportunity that I have to serve. I pray for my ability to teach and pray for others' ability to learn. And Holy Spirit, please cause our time to be pleasing to you and profitable to us. We ask this in Jesus' good name, amen. Well, today we find ourselves in uh, 1 John, the Father Heart of God. We're spending 13 weeks going through the book and we're in 1 John chapter two, uh, beginning in verse 12. And uh, really what we've got today is we've got a family meeting with Grandpa John. Um, a little bit about me. I grew up in a, in a home with five kids, three boys, two girls. I was the oldest. And now Grace and I are honored to have a large family, at least by today's standards. We've got five kids, three boys, two girls. And I don't know about you, but in, in the home that I grew up in, in the home that I have the pleasure of, of leading today, once in a while, we'll call a family meeting. You guys know what those are? Hey kids, time for family meeting. And everybody either piles into the living room and sits on the couch and in the chairs and we discuss something for a while or we meet at the dining room table and we sit around and we have a discussion about something important for a period of time. And I really want you as we're going through 1 John to understand that really it's a series of family meetings that the early church most likely met in homes. Uh, it was not yet a legalized religion. They were persecuted and opposed. They were scattered. As a result, they tended to meet more privately than publicly. Uh, we as a family have been to Greece, Israel, Turkey. We look at the places, we looked at the places rather where early Christianity began, and they tended to meet from house to house. Some of the houses were very small, small groups of people. Some of them were very large, large groups of people. And is the case in the valley, some of the more affluent communities had basically community centers and clubhouses where you could do larger joint meetings and gatherings. And so there was a whole range of meeting sizes. But as John sends this letter out, it would have been read by the various groups of Christian believers. Many of them were meeting in homes. So they're literally sitting on the couch or sitting at the dining room table. And the leader of that group of Christian people would say, time for a family meeting. We got a letter from Grandpa John. 
And John is really functioning as a grandpa at this point. He's somewhere between 80 and 100 years of age. He started walking with Jesus when he was in his 20s. Uh, he was sort of an ambitious, impetuous, uh, loudmouth young man. And then as he grows older, he, he gets redirected by God. He becomes a more loving, more humble, more gracious, more compassionate spiritual father. And so as you hear his language, he's gonna say it over and over and over, love one another. He's gonna say that about 40 times in five chapters. He's gonna call the people, my dear children and my beloved. You can only say that when you're an older guy who's got a real heart of love and the people know your heart for them. And so today, as we're, as we're reading his words, just think how wonderful it would be if you had a grandpa that had walked with Jesus faithfully for 60 or 80 years, was very wise, made some big mistakes in his life, said some things he'd regretted, but he was honest about them. He was humble about them. He learned from them. He, he grew from them. And he had a real tender, affectionate heart toward you. All of us would benefit from a man like that, right? A grandpa who, who loved you, cared for you, had wisdom and wanted to help you. Well, we're now into the second and third generation of Christians. There's a lot of young people that have become Christians, a lot of new Christians. And this is really a family meeting where Grandpa John has a word to say to everybody. And he's gonna have a word to three different kinds of people. And then he's gonna warn them about three kinds of, of enemies. And so we'll start with, uh, first of all, a word to all God's kids. And first John chapter two, verse two, he says, I'm writing to you, little children. Okay, when you're pushing a hundred, everybody's a kid, amen? Everybody's a kid. When you're pushing 100, you could call everybody kid and that's okay. He's somewhere between 80 and 100. I'm writing to you little children, but you get the father heart of God. And the father heart of God is that we're his kids and the father heart of God dwells in John and he's got a real heart for the people, including us because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. And there it's talking about the name of Jesus, the most famous name in the history of the world, the name by which we are saved. And the whole story of the Bible is it's really about the person and work of Jesus. And he goes on to say in 1 John chapter 2, verse 13, I write to you, children, again, because you know the Father. Again, real, real family language, and here is the Father's heart echoing through the words of John. And what he tells all of us, and so this is for, this is for the young and the old, this is for the men and the women, and there are times that the Bible will say something to young men or to older men or to young women or older women or to all the females or to all the males. In this family meeting, he's gonna start with a word for everybody and then he's gonna to communicate to the young men and to the older men. And what he wants all of God's people to know is number one, you're forgiven. And number two, you have a father. Those are his two big ideas, that you're forgiven. And let, let me hit this, you're forgiven for his namesake. And so he, he immediately reminds us about Jesus. And Christianity is sometimes about learning new things. Sometimes it's about reminding ourselves of, of old things, eternal things. I really want you to know that if you belong to Jesus, all your sins are forgiven. That there are things that we have all said and done that we regret. There are days of our life that we wish we could take back. There are deeds that we've done that we wish we could erase. There are words that we said that we wish we had a rope on and could pull back and not send them to do harm to others. We all have regrets. We all have misgivings. We all have faults and flaws and failures. And some of you live under a real burden of condemnation. You feel that. You feel regretful, you feel remorseful. And what forgiveness does is it removes that burden from you. And I want that burden lifted from you today. 
that, that Satan and demons and those who are unforgiving and bitter will never forgive you and they don't want you to experience the, the unburdening power of forgiveness. God's a God who forgives. And sometimes in Christianity, we can, we can assume this so quickly that we don't appreciate it as deeply as we could or should. In, in, in other religions, you have to do something to earn forgiveness. You have to go to purgatory and suffer for a while. You need to die and then reincarnate and live some sort of suffering life whereby you are paying God back for all of your faults, flaws, and failures. Christianity alone really has forgiveness of sin full and complete forgiveness of sin. And it talks about in the Bible that God the Father sent his son, Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, that Jesus lived without any sin, that he went to the cross and he substituted himself and he died in our place for our sin. And Jesus says it from the cross. He prays for us, Father, forgive them. And then he pays the penalty for our sin and he dies. Three days later, he rises on a Sunday. That's why we're here today. And the whole point of Christianity, it's about Christ. It's all for his namesake. And so your name and my name will not last or endure, but the name of Jesus will continue into eternity. And that's why the name of Jesus is the most famous name in the history of the world. More songs sung about him, more paintings painted of him, more books written regarding him than anyone who's lived in the history of the world. And so I need you to know that the Bible is about Jesus and it's for us, but the Bible is not primarily about us and about our name and making our name great and being winners and being triumphant and being victorious and and being glorified. It's about his namesake. It's about Jesus is our victory. Jesus is our forgiveness. Jesus is the way that we're reconciled to the Father. Jesus is the one we're going to sing the praise of for all eternity. And that's the focus. So the first thing he wants us to know is you're forgiven. I just want you to take a deep breath you're forgiven. God's not angry at you if you're a Christian. God's not punishing you if you're a Christian. God loves you, God embraces you, God knows you, God forgives you. I just need you to understand that. I need you to embrace that. And then my question to you would be, are you a Christian? Have you given your sins to Jesus? Are you forgiven? If not, it's not about anything you do, it's about everything that he's done. And it's about you giving him your worst and he gives you his best. That's Christianity. He says you have forgiveness and number two, you have a father. And let me say this, it doesn't matter how old you are, it's always helpful to have a dad, amen? You never get too old where you're like, I have no need for an older, wiser person to speak into my life and help me. And I love this imagery that is throughout the scriptures, but especially in John and first John rather, where God is a father. And for me, now that I have the great honor of being a dad, um, I more understand the father heart of God than at any point in my life. And this would be true for mothers as well, that God's heart is a parental heart. The way that you moms love, are committed to, concerned for your kids, the way you dads are loved, committed to, concerned for your kids, that's the father heart of God perfectly, perfectly. And this is really unique because in pantheism or panentheism or monism or Eastern religion or all of these, God is not a personal being, he's an impersonal force. You don't have a relationship with him. In addition, in in other religions, there are a whole pantheon of gods and you pick one. In in Christianity, there's there's just one God and God reveals himself as a father. I need you to understand how remarkably unique that is. 
of all the ways that God could have revealed himself, the fact that he chose father, the fact that Jesus taught us to pray to God as father, that means that we're not orphans, that we're not abandoned, that we're not on our own, that we're not performing for God, that we're not trying to impress God, that just like a, a dad loves their kid and wants to instruct them and correct them and provide for them and protect them, that's God's heart for his kids. And I want you to know how healing these two things are. I believe that these two things are so incredibly healing because most people feel guilty for things they've said and done and they feel lonely because they don't know that God is their father. When you know that you're forgiven and you have a father, that gives you hope for your future. Forgiveness with your father gives you hope for your future. And, and this idea of forgiveness of sins, what he's talking about here, it's past, present and future. Everything you've done in the past, if you belong to Jesus, forgiven. Whatever you're doing in the present, whatever you did last night, and maybe even what you will do in the future, all forgiven. And your father doesn't leave you. He doesn't punish you. He doesn't abandon you. He doesn't forsake you. I'm honored to have five kids. And if any of my kids should say or do something that they shouldn't, that's when I draw near to them because they need me. I don't turn my back on them because I love them. That's, that's the father heart of God. Do you get that? Now he's gonna have a word to young men and he's gonna have a word to older men. So firstly, uh, a word to young men. And in the Bible, young men are pretty much 40 and under, roughly. Older men are 40 and over. So in recent years, I have crossed that threshold and that's where I find myself. First John chapter two, verse 13, the second half, I'm writing to you, young men, so you guys that are under 40, this is a specific word for you. This is a family meeting. Imagine Grandpa John's looking at you saying, all right, boys, I have something I need to tell you. Okay, this is where the young men, their ears should be attuned. Okay, Grandpa John, what do you got for us? Because you have overcome the evil one. That Satan has a plan to capture, to ensnare, to destroy young men. And if he can do that, then he can destroy their lives and their legacies. He can get their kids and their grandkids. First John chapter two, verse 14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. That could be a good thing or a bad thing. It depends on what a young man does with it. And the word of God, the scriptures abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So this will be a little uncomfortable, but for a few moments, I would like all the men who are under 40 to stand, all the young men, all the young men that are under 40, 40 and under, okay? Okay, if you're here, these are the guys that he's talking to, the young men, the young men. And for you young men, I need you to understand that first of all, there's an evil one. There is demonic opposition, there is satanic attack against young men. You need to understand that. And what you're going to need to be is strong so that you can overcome the evil one. You need to understand that. You young men need to know as well that the plan of the evil one is to rob you of all of your strength. That's his plan for you. And, and the way it works culturally is this, for the first time in the nation's history, more women than men are in church, okay? So we're glad to have you, and this is a good start. Number two, for you young men, for the first time in the nation's history, there are more women, young women than men in the workforce. Guys aren't working jobs. 
They're not thinking about their career or their future providing for their family. Number three, for the first time in the nation's history, there are more young women than men who have a driver's license. Guys aren't even getting their driver's license thinking about going to work or getting married or taking their kids to school or going to pick up groceries. And additionally, what we have now is the first time in the nation's history, more women than men, young women than young men are in college. So what we have now is a completely distracted generation of young men, a completely addicted generation of young men. They're not going to college to build a career. They're not getting a driver's license to prepare for a future. They're not going to church to learn about God their father and the forgiveness of sin and what it is to be a responsible and honorable young man. And as a result, um, young women are really struggling to find young men that they can marry, that love and serve the Lord. In addition, the least likely person to go to church today is a young man under the age of 40, the least likely. And instead they're spending all of their time on their phone. They're freeloading off of their mother or their girlfriend or their wife. They're making someone else carry their masculine responsibilities. And I need you to know that that is, that is a battle with the evil one. This is not just the way that our culture does things. This is the way that Satan and demons want things to be done. It's evil, it's not helpful. The result is that for the first time in the nation's history, the majority of children born to men and women 30 and under are born out of wedlock. 40% of kids tonight go to bed without a father. So what you have is this culture of young men who behave irresponsibly. They shift all of their responsibilities over to women and children and to cops and to jails and to governmental systems and social service networks. And here's what I want you to know, you, can take responsibility for your own life. And as you take responsibility for your own life, you start to embrace the masculine dignity that God intends for you. You worship your own God, you pay your own bills, you carve out your own path, you determine your own career, you, you, you focus on the future that God has for you. As you take responsibility for yourself, then you're ready to get married and take responsibility for a woman, one of God's daughters. And then as God blesses you with children through birth or through adoption, now you're taking responsibility for the, the well-being and life of, of children with your last name. And now what we're talking about is your legacy and your lineage. Now we're talking about two, three, four, five generations, one day looking back saying, well, the course of our family altered when, when a young man gave his life to Jesus, when a young man experienced the forgiveness of sin, when a young man embraced God as his father and he started walking with the father and that changed the whole life course and trajectory of our entire family. And some of you guys were born without a dad or you didn't have a good dad or the trajectory of your family is actually a very negative and brutal one. And that's my story. I come from a long line of wife beating, violent, mean-spirited, ungodly men. And I met Jesus and he's in the process of changing me. And my dad met Jesus and he's in the process of changing my dad. And the course of our entire family has shifted, it's pivoted. Once you know that you're forgiven, once you know that you have a father, once you know that God has intentions for young men and that he has allowed young men to become strong, then you have the masculine dignity and strength to take the hand of the father and to say, I'm going to battle against these things that are trying to destroy me, destroy my future, destroy my legacy, and I can overcome because the word of God lives in me. The difference between a boy and a man is this, 
a man takes responsibility in a way that a boy does not. And let me say this as well. Some of you who are standing, you're 10, you're 12, you're 16, you're 18. It is not a sin to act like a boy when you're a boy, but it's a problem when young men act like boys. There's nothing wrong with acting like a 12 year old if you're a 12 year old. If you're a 32 year old, it's a problem, okay? And, and the problem in our culture is this, we don't know when you become a man. There's no rite of passage, there's no declaration. And so we have created something called adolescence. And in the Bible, there were two life stages, young man, grown man. And so you would go from boy to young man. Jesus' father was probably a teenager. Some of the great leaders in the Bible are very young men. And our culture doesn't know when you become a man. So what happens is we push it out and we create this third category called adolescence. So you're not a young man or an older man, you're just a guy. And that adolescent season, it now continues indefinitely so that guys are in their 20s and still don't know what they're doing. They're waiting until they're 30 plus to marry. But in the meantime, they're on their phone, they're playing video games, they're dating, sleeping with, living with women, they're having children, they have no intention of raising. They're creating lots of mayhem and chaos. Well, that's the plan of the evil one. That's not the plan of your father. That's not the plan of your father. And the result is that adolescence is extended well into your 30s. And some guys will extend it all the way into the 40s. And then you get a midlife crisis, which is grown men going back to act like immature, godless young men. And, and I need you men to know that right here at the foundation of the Trinity Church, right here is where we're laying the bedrock for what God would have for us. We need you young men because you're strong. The young men bring energy, they bring life, they bring courage, they bring vitality. And you're absolutely needed. And let me just give you one more thing. And I know I'm making you stand for a long time, but the word of God abides in you. That's how you overcome the evil one and be strong. How many of you, when you were little boys, you played with swords, right? Okay, you should have, it's biblical, okay? Uh, it's a little, little teachable moment for the moms. Let your boys play with swords, not real ones, okay? Pretend. Once I was telling this story and some guy literally sent me a huge, real two-handed sword for my sons. I was like, and they're like five. They're like, thank you, Lord. No, you'll kill each other. When my boys were little, they liked to play with pretend swords. When boys are little, they like to see themselves as a valiant warrior who's at, you know, at war and battle against evil forces. And they're going to defend and protect and the whole goal is to defeat evil, to rescue a princess and to live in a kingdom, right? That's a lot of our cultural narratives. Little boys play these fantasy role-playing games with plastic swords growing up. And I need you to know that when you become a 20 something or 30 something, that is oftentimes the thematic nature of the video games that you're wasting your whole life playing. And the storyline of the Bible is that there's a dragon there's a real dragon named Satan. He's the evil one. That he is at war against God's men, particularly young men. And what happens is that the scripture says in Ephesians and Hebrews that we battle Satan by taking up a sword. And what is the sword? What is the sword according to the scriptures? Well, the sword is the scriptures. It's the word of God. It's, you know, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to the joints and marrows. You need to understand that all of history is a war and that your father has an enemy and that your family has an enemy. 
And the evil one has a plan to get you to be a self-destructive, selfish young man, to take all of that strength and have it misdirected toward death, not toward life. That's the plan. And that can be video games, pornography, alcohol, you know, serial dating, irresponsibility, blowing your money, freeloading off your parents, mooching off your big hearted mom, or finding a gal that doesn't have a lot of discernment and calling her a girlfriend. Okay? And, and that's the plan to be a consumer, not a producer, to be a taker, not a giver, to be one who brings harm, not, not, not brings life. And so the way that you win this battle is first of all, you've gotta, you gotta take up the sword, the word of God. And what happened to your father, Adam in the garden, Satan comes to him and literally twists and manipulates the word of God, literally takes the sword out of his hand and then stabs the whole family. The way that you and I do battle against the enemy, particularly young men, you're strong, that's good. But if you don't understand the weapon of war, and that is the word of God that renews your mind and gives you the heart of your father and gives you the mind of your father so that you can love, honor, and cherish women and children and serve the kingdom of God. If you don't understand that, then you become part of the problem, not part of the solution. And you young men, it is your friends that are in trouble. It is your friends that have gone astray. It is your friends that are, are living in absolute rebellion and folly. And if you're strong and the word of God abides in you, you need to take up the sword. You need to understand that you have an enemy who's against your father and your family. You need to walk in integrity and then also share the word of God with those young men who need instruction and correction and direction. And that's the mantle I wanna put on you today. And the storyline of the Bible is that Jesus comes as a dragon slayer, right? Uh, that, that Satan is a dragon and that Jesus is the dragon slayer. And it says in Revelation that he will come back and that a sharp sword will protrude from his mouth, which is the word of God. And with that, he will make war. So all you little boys who grew up and you say, man, I want a sword and I wanna defeat a dragon and I wanna rescue a princess. That's what God puts in the hearts of boys because that's the storyline of the whole Bible. That's the storyline of the whole Bible that Jesus comes to conquer the dragon, to rescue the princess called the church and to set up a kingdom where they live happily ever after. So when you're a little boy and you're reading these narratives and these cultural stories and you're growing up sword fighting as a little boy and then you become a young man and you pick up your phone to play video games that rip off the storyline of the Bible, my point would be this, put your phone down, pick your Bible up and get in on the real battle the war against Satan and demons, the war against the evil one, and wait for the Lord Jesus to come back. And ultimately he will put down all evil and usher in the kingdom through the word of God. So I need you young men, you're strong, but the word of God needs to live in you if you're to walk in any victory. You gotta be Bible readers, Bible memorizers, Bible studiers. A little boy needs somebody to feed them, right? A grown man feeds himself. It's a great honor for me to feed you today, but after we're done, I need you every day to pick up the word of God. I need you to learn how to handle the sword. I need you to know truth from lies and father from enemy. And I need you to take responsibility to feed yourself. At this church, we will honor young men. We will invest in young men. We will speak to young men. We will care for young men. And here's why. There's nowhere else you can go to receive this. If you're a young man, you say, I wanna walk in integrity, where do you go? There is no men's studies degree. 
There's no institute to train young men how to be responsible men. There's nowhere to go to figure out how to be a husband and a father. The church of Jesus Christ is uniquely positioned in the culture to welcome young men to Jesus, to introduce them to him as big brother, to put the sword in their hand, to put the father over them in authority to lead them. And if this happens, then your lives and legacies will be transformed. And whatever the history of your family has been, it absolutely pivots and changes with you. Father, let me just break right now for a moment and pray for these young men. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to open the word of God and to bring a word to young men. Father, thank you that you love your sons. You love your young sons. Lord, for the guys that are 10, 12, 20, 30, 35, Lord, something in us as men resonates with this this understanding that that God is our father, that the scriptures are a, a sword, that the world is at war, that our lives and legacies are at stake. God, I pray for the young men that they would be strong in the word of God. I pray Lord God as well, that as a result, they would be able to do as John says and overcome the evil one. All of this distraction in culture, this constant feeding of sinful appetites and consumption of images and women and substances that are unhealthy, ungodly, and unhelpful. Lord, I think of Paul's words where he says, when I was a boy, I thought like a boy, I acted like a boy, and I reasoned like a boy. And when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Lord, I pray for these young men that they would be honorable, not dishonorable, that they would be men and not boys, and that they would take upon themselves the mantle of responsibility starting today in Jesus' good name. Amen. You young men could take a seat. There's his word to young men. He's now got a word for older men, the guys that are 40 and over. We'll read it together. First John chapter two, verse 13, and then in 14, he says, I'm writing to you, what's the word? Fathers, okay. God's a father. All men are to have the father's heart, particularly toward women and children. And older men need to have the heart of a father. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And that know is incredibly important. God doesn't waste a word in his word. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Um, old guys, sometimes you gotta repeat yourself because they didn't hear you the first time. So he says it twice here. <laughs> I am now at that age where I would fit in the category of an older man. And I want you to know this about me. When I was a young man, I ministered out of a place of being a brother. As I got older, I ministered out of a place of being a big brother. And one of the great joys in planting this church is now I get an opportunity to minister out of the place of being a father. And we're planting this church as a family with five kids and we're praying and talking and serving. And yesterday, my 16 year old son and I ripped up a bunch of carpet that I think started in the Old Testament. It's been around a long time. (laughs) And so we are planting this church together as a family and we're doing it together. And that's a great honor. The first church that I planted, I wasn't a dad yet. We didn't even have kids. And now I am a dad with five kids and it's a great honor to be a father. And my heart, my prayer every morning, you need to know this, my prayer every morning is that I would love you from the same place that I love all five of my kids. You need to know that that's my heart. Um, and, And I want you to know that here at the Trinity Church, we will honor older men because God does. We live in a day that is an obsessed youth culture that really dishonors, disregards, and disrespects older men and women. We won't do that. 
We wanna be a church that is multiple generations and we believe that the fractured relationships in the culture are healed by understanding God as your father and participating in the church, where even if you don't have mothers and fathers, there are godly older men and women who can be in that kind of helpful role, okay? So here's what I wanna do. I wanna ask all the men who are over 40 to stand up for a moment, okay? All the men that are over 40. And I would like you all to just take a moment and honor them today and thank them for being with us. How we treat our fathers is incredibly important. It's incredibly important. And and here's what he says to you fathers. For you older men, um, the younger men have strength. The older men have wisdom. That's when he uses this word, know, you know him and you know him. What he's talking about is um, truth plus experience over time. There are certain things that you can read and you know, but you don't really know until you experience them, amen? There's a lot of things in life. A woman can read a book on childbirth. She doesn't really know it until she's had a child. A man can read a book about marriage. He doesn't really know much about it until he's been married for a while. You men need to know, you older men need to know that your experiences with the Lord are incredibly invaluable. And I'm not just talking about your positive experiences, I'm talking about your negative as well. That God is so gracious and good that he uses all of our experience and he uses it to benefit and bless others. So if you're a man and your story is, I've been faithful to my wife for my whole life, then out of that experience, you will be a great blessing and benefit to everyone else, especially the young and newly married couples. If you're a man who says, I've been through a divorce, I've done things that I regret, I've been through some painful circumstances and seasons in my life, you're not disqualified, you are now qualified to speak from even some of your pain or your hurt or your failure. And that's what the dad in Proverbs does. And when it talks about being a father for you older men, I would just beg you, spend some time in the book of Proverbs. And over and over and over, it is a father talking to his kids about very practical things like relationships and money and work and and parenting and, and, and having the right kind of friends, particularly in your younger years. And the hope and the prayer and the goal is for all of you older men to know that God is your father and you've still got a father and you're still a son. And then to look at others from the position of a spiritual father. And if we formalize this, it gets very bizarre and cultish and just unhelpful and unholy. But I want your heart to be a father's heart. You get that? I want your heart to be a father's heart. And what we have with young men is a whole generation that weren't parented, didn't have a father. And for those who come to know the Lord Jesus or come to our church, we want the older men to have a father's heart toward them. This is the heart of the apostle Paul. He calls Timothy, Titus, Onesimus, my sons. Here throughout 1 John, this is his language. My dear children, my beloved, that's his heart. It's a dad's heart. It's a father's heart. And I need you older men to know that, you know, John is a guy when he was young, he was ambitious, but he was misdirected. And by God, he got redirected. He was a loud mouth. He, he tells Jesus he wants to rule in heaven. He, he wants to call down fire on a whole town of Samaritan villagers. He's not a loving guy. He's not a patient guy. He's not a gracious guy. When he's a young man, he, he's not a particularly um, loving man. But he talks about all of that. He talks about the sins of his youth. He talks about his faults and his flaws and his failures. And history is open about those. And and in this church, we want you to have the freedom to do the same. 
And it doesn't need to be openly and publicly and sharing your business with everyone, but as God gives you opportunity to say, here's some mistakes I've made. Here's some things I've done right. Here's some things I've done wrong. Here's things I've learned through observing others. Here's things I've learned the hard way. Here's things where God's wisdom has saved me from a lot of harm. And let me just say that it is a grievous thing that we live in an addicted youth culture where all of the celebrities and all of the popularity is toward the youngest and most foolish. And what we tend to do with those who are older is we tend to dismiss them. And even culturally now, you hardly ever see an older man in a movie or in a television show, unless they're an object of ridicule and they're, and they're a punchline for a joke. And almost every television show I've ever seen or every movie I've ever seen for kids, the dad, the grandpa is always an idiot. They don't know what's going on. The children save the day. The family pet, the cat, the dog, the hamster, whatever the case may be, is really the one who is leading the family and saving everyone. Okay? And these are all cultural narratives that try to reinforce that father wound and to separate kids and grandkids from their dads and their grandpas. And so I want you men to know that all of your experience, anything you have learned in relationship with the Lord Jesus, it is incredibly valuable. The pastors will talk about your time, your talent, your treasure. I would add to that, your experience, your experience. You men are gifts to the church and your gifts to younger men and women, particularly those that don't have a godly father. And some of you men are older and you're falling into that cultural temptation right, to waste your best years, to just spend them in retirement, to take the final days that God would give you on the earth and, and using them just to golf or to chase women or to spend your money. Um, I would instead ask you to consider with the father, dad, what are the best ways for me to invest, to spend, to deposit the energy, the experience, the lessons, the relationships that you've given me through the course of my life. And, and I'll just say this to the older men. Um, young men are like a sail and older men are like a rudder. And in the church, you need both. Churches that are all young men, they are going fast right to the rocks. Right? Churches that are only older men, they are straight on course, not moving, still in the dock. We wanna be a church that has the strength of the young men and the wisdom of the older men. We want the younger men to serve as a sail with a lot of energy and strength. We want the older men to help guide them with wisdom and instruction and correction and direction. Father, I thank you for the older men that are here today. Lord, there are some wise, godly, seasoned older men here. Lord, some of them don't understand how much they have to share. They don't understand that for so many that grew up without a father, even just the loving presence of an older man, the prayers of an older man, the encouragement of an older man, it's a healing deposit in the soul. Help them to know that they are a gift and help them to have father your heart. For those older men, Lord God, that have regrets. Life has moved fast and they've made mistakes. They've, they've meandered down relational and vocational paths that are dead ends or unfruitful or unholy or unhelpful. Father, I pray that they would know that their sins are forgiven and they have a father that Father, you are still seeing them as a son, even though they're an older man, they're still a child to you. That Lord, you forgive them and you're walking with them and you wanna take what has been misdirected and cause it to be redirected and to take even the most painful experiences of their life and to use them to help encourage and instruct others. 
Father, I thank you for these fathers, these older men. I thank you for the opportunity to uh, encourage them today. And I pray that they would know, Lord God, that they are a tremendous gift, that they are a blessing, that any deposit or investment they would make in the lives of others, it is, it is healing, it is hopeful, it is helpful. And so, Lord, I thank you for these men, and I pray for the Holy Spirit to be strong in them and for grace and love to flow through them as it did through John. And we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen. Um, so he's going to move from a word to all of God's kids, a word to younger men, a word to older men. And let me just pause. This only happens in the church. See, when we're done, you're going to go to lunch. Nobody's going to talk about this. You're gonna turn on the TV, nobody's gonna tell you this. Nobody's gonna tell you that most of the big problems in our culture are father-related. That fathers don't raise sons, that sons grow up, impregnate women, fill prisons, commit crimes, do drugs, alcohol, violence, and then everything continues unabated and the Church of Jesus Christ is uniquely positioned to come in and to say, this is a man, this is a woman, this is a young man, this is a young woman, children are a blessing, this is how we do life, this is the Father's heart, and to encourage the older men to love the younger men and then the younger men to use their strength to defend, protect, love, and serve women and children. That's where the church is a countercultural, uniquely positioned entity. There's nothing bigger than the church. It's the biggest entity in the history of the world. It's the biggest organization on the planet. And God loves the church and it's a great honor to be the church. And we wanna be a church that has a father's heart and that we function as a spiritual family. I hope you get my heart here. I hope you get my heart. Okay, and so then he moves to the evil trinity, okay? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that's the Trinity. The evil Trinity is the devil, the world, and the flesh. And so he's gonna start with chapter two, verse 14 through 17. This is the end of our text today. He talks about the evil one. See, what I just told you is the heart of the Father and the plan for the kingdom and his intention for the church and his intention for your family. And you say, well, why did these things not happen? Why, why is there not health and life and growth? Well, because the evil one. Now, what we're talking about here is Satan. He's got a number of names in the Bible, the devil. And let me say this, evil is personal. Evil is personal. Satan is not equal to God. He's a created being. He was an angel created. So he's not the creator, he's created. He's not equal to God. He doesn't share all of God's attributes. God is everywhere, Satan isn't. God knows everything, Satan doesn't. God can do anything and Satan can't. Satan is a created being. He's not in any way equal to God, but he's in open rebellion against God. And with him are fallen spirits. The Bible refers to them as demons. When we talk about this, people in the culture start to think we're crazy. Okay, and if you've ever seen that movie, The Usual Suspects, the great line is, you know, the greatest lie that the devil has ever told is he's told the world that he doesn't exist. You need to understand that it doesn't matter how many elections we hold, it doesn't matter how many wars we wage, how many institutions we launch, or how many dollars we spend. There is a personal battle against God and the good and unless we address it, not just on economic, political, physical levels, but we understand it spiritually as well, then no progress can be made. You need to understand that. That means you can't just do everything right in your home. You need to pray. You need to pick up the word of God. 
need to understand that not everything is spiritual, is physical rather, that much that we're dealing with is spiritual in nature. There's an evil one. And here's why I want you to know that. Sometimes God's people, when they are under distress and duress, they overlook the existence of Satan and demons. Some years ago, our family was on vacation and uh, a dear friend of ours called, just a wonderful, delightful, sweet, godly, newer Christian gal. And she called my phone and she had been through a series of horrific, traumatic experiences. I won't go into the details, but she asked with you know, tears in her eyes and a quiver in her voice on the phone. She said, Pastor Mark, why does God keep doing this to me? Okay. I said, what do you, what do you mean? Will, will this happen to me? And then this happened to me and this happened to me. And, and I love God and I don't know why he would do this to me. I said, oh, you, you, you see God in heaven and you on earth and you, you forget that third person. You, you've overlooked Satan and demons. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. That's what we read in 1 John 2. God is a father. He's not an abusive father, by the way. God's not an abusive father. God's not a violent father. God's not a dangerous father, not toward his children. He's not, he's not. I said, I, I won't pretend to know everything that's happening. I, I won't pretend to, to understand all that is occurring, but I will tell you this, these evil, horrific, traumatic, dramatic things that have happened to you, they're not of the Lord, they're ungodly. They're, let's just use a good Bible word, they're evil. Not just difference in perspective or ideology or, or that's your opinion. No, there's certain things that are just evil. They're just evil. And evil is done to persons and evil done to persons, it comes from a personal source of evil, Satan. And for those of you who are Christians, I need you to know this, especially those of you who are newer Christians, when you're suffering, when you're hurting, your thought could be, God, why are you crushing and punishing me? And it may be that Satan is really participating in the blame. Do you understand that? Otherwise, what happens is we start blaming everything that happens on God. And if you read the Bible, there are things that are against the will of God. There's a whole kingdom that's risen up in rebellion against God, that Satan and demons are in defiance of God and they're, they're seeking to harm God's people. I need you to know that. So for all of God's children whose sins are forgiven and God is their father, for the young men who are strong and at war with the evil one, and for the older men that need to have wisdom to help instruct and correct and direct us all, uh, the first thing he says is you need to understand your first enemy and it, it, there really is evil in the world is Satan and demons are real. And C.S. Lewis says rightly, we can err two ways. We can make too much of Satan or too little. Some of you come from backgrounds where the devil made me do it. You know, the devil's, everything's the devil's fault and it abdicates us of our personal responsibility and our moral choice making. Some of you, it was too little. Satan and demons were never spoken of. And everything was somebody's fault or their biology or their psychology or their genetic predisposition, but there was never really an understanding. Like there is evil in the world and, and not everything is just human beings. There are powers, principalities, and spirits. There's a world behind the world that we don't see in the world that we do see. Number one, there really is an enemy. Number two, the second he talks about is the world. Uh, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Okay, let me just hit this briefly. It can get confusing because 
in another book that he wrote, John said, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus. And here, so God loved the world. And he says, us don't love the world. He told us earlier in 1 John 2, uh, that Jesus is the propitiation, not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. What's he talking about? Well, that word has a, has a whole constellation of images that it means. Sometimes it refers to the physical planet. This is the world that God made. That's what we tell our kids. Sometimes it refers to cultural groups of people that God loves the world, not just the Jewish people, but all of the nations and races of people. Sometimes that world refers to all humanity, all the people that bear the image and likeness of God. And in this negative and pejorative sense, it refers to open rebellion against God. Okay, it's the domain of the evil one. If you just connect those words, evil one and world, they work together, they work together. Right, these are like two oars in a boat, they row together. The evil one tries to rule the world and the world system is rebellion against God, it's rejection of God. So when we're talking about the world, what we're talking about is that which is ungodly, that which is demonic, that which is opposed to God in that negative and pejorative sense of the world. And so he says that not only do we have the devil, we also have the world and they work together and these are our two external enemies. And, uh, and let me say this about the world. I um, don't know how much to get into this. Culture is not neutral because some aspects of every culture, okay? it's not like in our world, there is a godly culture and an ungodly culture that every culture has in it aspects of what we'll call worldliness. Worldliness meaning rebellion against God, rejection of God. And what has happened in our day, we've created a bucket called culture and then people can do things that are ungodly. And we say, well, that's okay. Cause that's their culture. No, if God is your father, then you're ultimately a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and your conduct is to be patterned after your father and his eternal home for you. And that means that sometimes we need to reject aspects of culture because they're worldly. I was talking to one man not long ago, a Hispanic man committing adultery on his wife. And he says, well, we don't get divorced. We just commit adultery in our culture. That's how we do it in our culture. Say, well, you can't just stand before God and say, that's how my culture does it. God would say, that's not how it's supposed to be done. It's not, it's not how we do it. In, in this culture where we're at, and I'll get a little prophetic for a moment, glad to be here, love Scottsdale, but if the goal is to be a man who makes as much money as you can, so you could divorce your wife and go get a younger wife, you can't just say, well, that, that's how we do it. Say, well, that's, that's worldly, that's not godly, but that's how everybody does it. Well, that's not how the Lord says to do it. Do you get that? Young people who will be watching things they shouldn't be watching, just saying, well, you're in your twenties. When you're in your twenties, you kind of just get a whole pass and you get 10 years to go do whatever you want. No, that's, that's worldly. You can't stand before the Lord and say, I was in my twenties, I'm sure it didn't count. God would say, no, your twenties count too. That's worldliness. Worldliness is a mindset of rebellion and rejection that we use to vindicate and justify ourselves by putting everything in the category of culture so that it's not in the category of sin. Do you understand that? 
Now, as soon as you start talking about this, everybody gets offended. And what I'm not saying is this people, this race, this culture is good and this one is bad. I'm saying that because we're all sinners and Satan is at work and the world is in every place, not just in a single place, that there is worldliness in every culture. I'm Irish by background. Historically, the Irish drink too much. And I can't say, yes, I drink too much, but that's okay. I'm Irish, that's how we are. I can't stand before the Lord Jesus and be like, Jesus, I was Irish, not my fault, you know? Um, Jesus would say, no, if, 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 if I died for you, you're forgiven and God's your father, then your behavior needs to model the kingdom, not the culture. It needs to model the kingdom and not the culture. Like father, like son, you're supposed to be like your dad, not just like the men who preceded you on your genealogy, but the father who adopted you. You get that? So what this means is that Christianity is for every culture. And we see this in Revelation, I think it's chapter five, that every tribe, language, culture, nation, group of people is around the throne of Jesus. And so God is not against cultures and languages and peoples, he's against worldliness. People from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue will be in the kingdom of God with Jesus forever. And they will bring none of the worldly aspects of their culture with them. You see that? For those of you who are younger, you've been absolutely saturated in political correctness and you've just allowed culture to be the excuse for sin, don't, don't. That's worldliness, that is worldliness. And then the third he talks about is uh, the flesh. And so on the next slide, here's his last point. For all that is in the world, okay? All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the flesh are continually posited against the spirit. So do your desires emanate from God or from not God, okay? That's the flesh. And the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father. No one could say, God gave me an evil desire. No one could say that, but it's from the world. Right? And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let me talk about the devil, the world, and the flesh. These are the three enemies of God and his people. This is the false trinity that's at work in the world. And let me talk a little bit about the flesh. So the devil and the world, those are your external enemies. The flesh is your internal enemy. What this means is you can get on a plane, you can fly to a deserted island, you can be separated from all humanity and technology and still have problems because the problem is in you. You understand that? What tends to happen in our culture is we tend to think if we just change someone's context, then we'll change their condition. That's not true. Adam and Eve, they sin in a perfect environment. Not everything is environmentally conditioned. Sometimes the problem is not out there, it's in here and it doesn't matter where we go, we're still the same person and the change needs to happen in us. Okay, that's the flesh. The flesh is this innate internal desire that, that has appetites and longings and yearnings that are just ungodly. Right? How many of you, you've, you've had certain temptations or desires well up in you, you're like, that was just ungodly. I can't believe I had that thought. I can't believe I had that temptation. I had that desire. That's the flesh. 
Now, when you become a Christian, you get a new nature. Your deepest desires are in the Holy Spirit. Our goal is to nourish our deepest desires. But when it's talking about those temptations, those sinful desires, those unhealthy, unholy longings and yearnings, when the Bible uses the language of the flesh, that's what it is straining to get you to embrace and understand. Now, let me say how these work together. Um, First of all, he talks about... um, the desires of the flesh. What this is, is a pleasure. Pleasure is not necessarily a bad thing, but it can be, okay? Everything God made is good. When we get to heaven, there will be, according to the scriptures, pleasure forevermore, okay? So I'm not saying that all pleasure is bad, but what I'm saying here is that the desires of the flesh, these are inordinate longings, these are yearnings, these are temptations, these are desires for things that God says no to, but we have a desire to say yes to. And it's physical pleasure that the body that God made comes with response pattern to pleasure that is not necessarily a bad thing, but it can become a very bad thing. So what we're dealing with today is alcoholism. What we're dealing with today is drug addiction. What we're dealing with today is gluttony. And let me say it this way. The more we are gratified, the less we are satisfied. Okay? The more we are gratified, the less we are satisfied. That's why people who are rich and famous die of a drug overdose. That's why people who seem like they have everything they could ever want cannot keep together a healthy marital relationship. They are yearning for some sort of connection. They are depressed and stressed and some even become suicidal. And we sit back and ask, how could they possibly get there? They, they have all the money, all of the pleasure, all of the passions, all of the desires. There's not a longing or a yearning that is not satisfied for them. And the issue is that when you feed the flesh, it ends in death. When you feed the flesh, it ends in death. That it becomes self-destructive, it becomes addictive. That's why the things that we love too much are the things that destroy us. The things that we enjoy too frequently are the things that cause our demise. What do you desire? What do you long for? What cravings and yearnings and passions and pleasures and satisfactions are not necessarily ungodly, but because of your flesh, those desires are becoming ungodly. Number two, the desires of the eyes. That the window really becomes the portal into the flesh. And all of a sudden, we live in a world where there, I, I usually drop my phone in the front row. I'm glad nobody's called. But right now what I can do, I could see anything I want. I'm like God. See, it used to be that only God could see whatever he wanted. Now we're all like gods. If I wanna see a place, I could see it. If I wanna see a person, I could see them. If I wanna see a person in a certain condition or clothed or unclothed, I could see whatever I want. I'm like God. I'm like God. Not only that, I can go to social media and I could see you. I could see what you ate today. I could see what car you drive. I could see what clothes you wear. I could see where you go on vacation. I could see how attractive your spouse is. I could see if your kids are, are happy or sad. I, I could see I'm God. I get to see everything. I'm all knowing. And I get to see it with my eyes. 
That's why on social media, more people click photos than they do statements by a wide margin. It's the lust of the eyes. It feeds advertising. Oh, I didn't even know that existed. Now I need to have it. I, I never even had a desire for that. And now that I see it, I want that. I want that person. I want that object. I want that experience. I want to go to that place. I want to eat that food. I want to do that thing. The lust of the eyes. Am I saying that a phone is sinful? No, I'm saying that we are. And that a phone in the hand of a sinner becomes a big problem because the lust of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, it gets us into real trouble. It creates this addictive compulsive, I have to see. Um, I I didn't intend to share this, but I I will. Um, I feel inclined to. Um, There's a a guy named Dr. Drew. I I have no indication he's a Christian. It's not mine to judge. Dr. Drew's not gonna die and give an account to me. He's gonna stand before Jesus and they'll sort it out. But I was on his television show, I was on his radio show, I've talked to him a few times over the years, and he wrote this interesting book called The Mirror Effect. And in his book, The Mirror Effect, he says that celebrities model and that people mirror, okay? And this is what they would call the culture of narcissism. And so today, to be famous, you don't need to do anything good, noble, or even exemplary. You just need to be famous. There are people that we all know, they're on the cover of the tabloids and they dominate our social media and your feed and they haven't done anything. They're just eccentric. That's it, okay? They're just weird. And what happens then is celebrities, he would say, they model extreme behavior and then we watch it and we mirror it. And that's the mirror effect. So the result is this whole celebrity culture, we wanna see what clothes they're wearing so we can wear those clothes. We wanna see what they're eating so we can eat that food. We wanna see what they're drinking so we can drink that drink. We wanna see what they're doing privately so we could do that privately. We, we wanna know how they look so that we could change our appearance to look like them. Now, what happens is over time, as they're mirroring and we're modeling, then what they were doing that was extreme is now just commonplace and mainstream. So then, Celebrities come and go, or they have to increase their eccentricity to hold our attention. It's the whole reality television phenomenon, why there's more than 200 reality television shows. It is what drives social media, and it's what drives the portal to our phone. What are they wearing? What are they eating? What are they doing? How are they dressing? How are they behaving? And then we see that and then we think, okay, I want to mirror that. I want to live like them. I want to be like them. And then they have to continually increase the extreme nature of the behavior. And all of this is a self-destructive cycle to where you have 10 year old girls wearing clothes that shouldn't be worn. And you've got 15 year old boys wanting to do things that they shouldn't even know about. Say, how did we get there? Well, the world and the flesh and the desires of the eyes. Seeing things that all of a sudden awaken in us a desire to mirror what has been modeled. And all of this is a worship cycle. And we're made in the image and likeness of God. That means we're made to mirror God. That means that we are to look at God. That means we're to fix our eyes on Jesus and that we are to follow in the example of Jesus and we're to mirror Jesus. And instead we put someone or something in his place and they model and we mirror. And that gets us into this demonic death cycle. 
How many of you are parents and you just look in one or two generations what has happened to conduct and behavior and identity and you're just terrified for your kids and grandkids because it's like, when does it stop? Where does it end? It always ends in death. Because the world in its wisdom doesn't know God. Because the flesh leads to death, it never leads to life. So he talks about the flesh, the internal desire, the eyes, seeing things. This leads to coveting. This leads to advertising. This is driving social media, which is not, I'm not saying that all things, I'm not saying it's a sin to have a phone. I'm not saying it's a sin to, you know, be on social media. I'm I'm not saying it's a sin to have a photo, but you know what's interesting too, now that I think about it, what do we take most of our photos of? (laughs) Me. Because I'm the center of the universe and everybody needs to see me. They need to see what I'm wearing. They need to see who I'm dating. They need to see where I'm going. They need to see what I'm driving. They need to see what I'm eating because you know what? I want them, I want them to admire me. I want them to, to covet me. I want them to, to worship me. There was something very spiritual that happened when we came to the place where we would take photos of people that we loved and, and we created technology that we would primarily take photos of the person we love the most. And that's me. Is it a sin to take a photo of yourself? No. But as a Christian, you've always got to check your heart and ask, why am I doing this? And why am I posting this? And why am I obsessed over how many people like this? Is that worldly? Is that fleshly? Is that seeking to elicit the desire of the eyes of others? And then his last point is the pride of life. Um, One of the translations, it's actually more of a paraphrase, talks about pride in our achievements and our possessions. Our achievements. All of a sudden it's not, God is my father, I'm forgiven and I have a father. There's my identity. I'm forgiven and I have a father. There's my identity. Instead, what happens is we seek to create our own identity through our possessions and our achievements. So in our achievements, all of a sudden it becomes, uh, I'm gonna be arrogant and boastful. Here's my grade point average. Here's how much money I make. Here's what tax tax bracket I'm in. Um, Here's all of my achievements. Here's my resume. I posted online so the whole world could see it. Not even because I need a job. I just want everybody to know how amazing I am and all the things that I've done. It's vocational, not fleshly. Even when we meet people, our achievements, hi, I'm so-and-so, here's where I work, here's how much I make, here's the car I drive. I'll let you know the neighborhood I live in so you get an idea of how significant I am. Our achievements. We even do this with our kids. So all of a sudden they're a little trophy for us and if they achieve something, then we put a bumper sticker on our car telling everyone how wonderful they are because they have our genes. (laughs) Right? And then we put this inordinate pressure even on our kids to perform because they're just a trophy in our trophy case. Our achievements and our possessions. 
sociologists will talk about something called conspicuous consumption. And what this is, you buy something, not because you need it, not because you like it, but because it makes a statement about you. I was riding with a guy, very tall, pretty big guy, some years ago in his car, a little sports car. Like, and to get in, I mean, I, I could barely get in. I'm not flexible enough to get in and out of this car. So I'm trying to get in and out of this little car. And I get in and the seat is built for me in third grade, okay? <laughs> I don't, I don't, I have an 18 inch neck. I do not fit in the seat. And I look over at this guy and he's way taller than me and way wider than me. And this is his car. And I said, and we're driving and I'm so uncomfortable and we're like six inches off the ground. I look over at him and his knees are basically, you know, up in his <laughs> cheeks. And I look, I said, I'm kind of surprised you bought this car. He said, yeah, I know. This is the least comfortable car I've ever owned. I said, well, how much did you spend for it? He told me it was six figures. This was a very expensive, nice car. I said, why don't you trade it in for a truck or an SUV or a luxury, something that fits you? He said, no, man, this car is awesome. Look at the statement that it makes about me. I said, well, the statement it makes is, you're foolish and you're driving around a car that doesn't even fit you and you're very uncomfortable. <laughs> That's conspicuous consumption. You buy something you don't need, maybe something you don't even like, so that other people will look at it and say, wow, that's, that's really a statement. We do this all the time with our possessions. From the clothes we wear, to the cars we drive, to the homes we live in, to the technology that we carry, the conspicuous consumption is always, I'm trying to make a statement about how significant I am and how I'm better than you and how you should covet me and you should, you should be jealous of me. We do this with our children. We do this with our spouse. This is how beautiful my spouse is. That's why we take photos of the best days in our life and we put them on social media, not our worst, right? How many of you are like, I woke up today bloated. You don't post that, <laughs> right? Because this whole world system is, we're not sinners. It's not a fallen world. We're gods and goddesses and we're living in you know, Edenic bliss and everything is fine. And I'll post all the photos of my glorious life and all the glorious people in my life and all of my glorious possessions. I don't need to die and go to heaven. I live there now. And it causes us to be actors and actresses playing roles, living miserable, isolated lives and posting lies online incessantly while others do the same. And everyone's coveting one another and everyone's jealous of one another and everyone's judging one another and everyone's fighting with one another and nobody's really loving one another because they don't really know one another. And that's worldliness, and that's fleshly, and that's demonic, and that's not life as God intended. It even leads to something that the sociologists will call competitive consumption. You have something, and now to compete with you, I need to get something better. You do an improvement on your home, we gotta improve our home. You got a new car, I need to get a new car. You moved into a bigger house, I gotta go get a bigger house. What's the solution to all of this madness? You're God's kids. All your sins are forgiven and your father loves you. And he says, the world and its desires are passing away. 
everything that you have, you need to know this, everything you had, everything you have will be set on fire. Okay, it'll be set on fire. And when you enter into the kingdom of God, you will take with you two things, the word of God and the people of God. And when you get there, the home you live in, the father will give that to you. The food that you eat, the father will give that to you. Whatever mode of transportation we have, it says the streets are lined with gold. I don't know what we're driving, that the father will provide that for you. That we don't take anyone with us that doesn't belong to the father. And we don't take anything with us to the father except the word of God. You know what that means? The word of God and people are the most important things on the earth. So our little statement here at the Trinity Church is we open our Bibles to learn. We open our lives to love. That you don't need an identity. The Father loves you. You have an identity. You don't need to do a lot of things to pay God back for whatever you've done. Jesus forgives you. It's all taken care of. You're the children of God. Your sins are forgiven. You have a Father. The world and all of its desires are passing away. And he says it right here in this section. But the person who does the will of God lives forever. And I would tell you with a smile on their face, with a smile on their face and a contentment in their heart. Father, thank you for an opportunity to teach the scriptures today. And Lord, I thank you that your word is not a, it's not just a timely word, it's a timeless word. And because it's a timeless word, it's always a timely word. God, cultures change, but the human heart doesn't. Um, the world changes, but the human need doesn't. Lord, I pray for us all, not that we would uh, come to a position as a result of this of negative holiness, that if we don't have a phone and we don't have a social media account and we don't wear clothes that fit and we don't drive a comfortable car, that then we're holy. That's not the point, Lord. The point is that we would do everything in relationship with our Father, that before we buy our car, we talk to our Father. Before we put on our clothes, we talk to our Father. Before we spend our money, we would talk to our Father. Before we try to form an identity, we would talk to our Father. And Father, thank you that you love us and you're a perfect, great, glorious, and good dad. I pray for all of the kids today that they would know that their sins are forgiven, that they have a father who loves them. I pray for the young men today, Lord God, who are in a real battle against the evil one in a culture that does nothing to encourage godliness and responsibility, that they would be strong because of the word of God in them. I pray for the older men, Lord God, that, that they would, out of the wisdom of their experience, positive and negative, help instruct and correct and direct the rest of us. And I pray for this family of the Trinity Church, Lord, and the future that you have for us. And I pray that as we now uh, collect our tithes and offerings and we see the kids play, that we would remember that uh, ultimately uh, the kingdom is where our heart and our treasure are to be and that we will enter it as children, celebrating and laughing, not so much worried about what we are wearing or how we are appearing, but just enjoying one another and being the kids of God. So thank you for this opportunity you've given us in Jesus' good name. Amen.